Well, happy Sunday to you. Uh, if you're with us online or you're here for the first time, know that we're glad you're here with us today. We're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Philippians. I've taught, I've taught living in joy. And almost every passage uh, for almost every sermon in this series talks about joy or rejoicing or thankfulness. And if it doesn't come up uh, in our passage, it'll come up soon after as a response. Uh, but what's interesting is that most would look at Paul's situation and think, why are you rejoicing? It, it doesn't make sense. How, how is Paul living with so much joy and how is he calling others to live with the same joy? When his world and his current situation, they don't look so great. I mean, when you read parts of this letter, you, you see that he's exuding with thankfulness as if he was just kind of sitting uh, on the beach uh, under an umbrella with a cool breeze in his face. But no, Paul is sitting in prison. Paul's likely in chains and he's not being, probably not being treated very well. Uh, and this letter to the Philippian church uh, was his thank you note back to them expressing his gratitude for their support, uh, which makes us ask, how does Paul have so much joy during such challenging times? How is Paul, as our series title suggests, how is he living with joy? And as we know, it's not because, uh, it can't be because of his circumstances, because uh, let's be honest, it uh, probably doesn't have the greatest view in prison. He's probably not having steak uh, dinners. His living situation is probably poor, and he's isolated. He's probably isolated from those that he cares about. Uh, he's, he's likely hindered from being able to fully do his job and his life work uh, in the way that he would like to do it. Uh, the world would look at him and say he's lost everything. He went from having everything to having almost nothing. And here he is writing a letter that is exuding with joy and thankfulness. And so in this series, we'll have to ask, what's the secret sauce? Right. How, what's the secret sauce to living a life of joy when it seems like everything around us telling us to be angry or disgruntled or apathetic or just plain miserable? Right, what is it? Well, the big picture Sunday school answer is Jesus, right, which is adamantly true. Uh, we can say that all day until we're blue in the face. Uh, but what about Jesus can give us such an incredible reason to rejoice uh, every single day? Because uh, let's be honest with ourselves here, we don't always feel like rejoicing. You know, I'm not always exuding with joy. In fact, I sometimes feel the exact opposite. So what is it about Jesus that can help us find joy, even in times of trouble and sorrow? And so over the next 10 weeks, uh, we'll seek to answer that question of how can we find joy in Christ? And so that said, our main idea today, uh, our, our first of many truths that will push us to joy, is joy is found in knowing God completes what he starts. This is an incredible truth. If God starts something, he finishes it. If God starts something in you, he completes in you what he starts. You know, a fun little quirk about me is that I just love to start things. Uh, if I haven't started something in a while, I get a little antsy. Uh, thankfully, every Tuesday I have the opportunity and the privilege to start a new sermon. It's one of the favorite things what I get to do. You know, when I, growing up, uh, I regularly uh, had new business ventures and when I was in the business world, uh, I love the challenge of trying to get new business. And along those lines, I also love a good, uh, starting a good house project. However, my Achilles heel in house projects is the struggle to finish what I start. You know, I'm notorious for just randomly taking out walls or sinks or toilets uh, just on a whim. They end up being major projects. About five years ago in our old house, uh, we had a sliding glass door in our living room. 
uh, in our, between our living room and our sunroom, and I was laying on the couch one night at 11 p.m., and I just decided, I was looking at the, the door, and I said, I'm going to take that out. So I just, I did it. Kelly woke up the next morning to a great surprise. It was great, right? It opened up the room. Uh, however, it took me about four years to case in and actually finish the project, partially because I was scheming what other walls I could take down around it. I never did that. Uh, but then two years later, or two years ago, actually, I tried to replace the countertops in one of our bathrooms. Should have been a pretty simple project. But two days later, I have completely gutted the entire bathroom. Right, I've got a chisel. I've got a concrete saw. I'm taking out drywall. I've taken the toilet out. The tile floor is completely gone. I'm watching YouTube videos on how to pour concrete, how to lay tile, how to take the old concrete walls out. I've installed a new toilet, new lights, new drywall, new vanity, installed new board and batten, painted one coat. Uh, and I worked really hard to get everything functional. Everything that really mattered in a bathroom was working. And then I decided to take a little break. And about eight months later, uh, I decided to finally sand and paint over the little brown spots on the trim that covered up the nail holes and to fill in the, the gaps between the boards and the wall and the board and batten and finish painting. And the only reason, honestly, I even did it that soon was so that I could, we could sell our house and get here to Tampa. And so now, anytime I talk about starting a new project, Kelly gets a little nervous. She's worried I may not finish what I start. Or possibly, uh, you look at a project or a task and you wonder, just like me, how in the world will we ever finish? Uh, the task at hand, it seems way too daunting and you're not sure how it's going to work. Some may know this way too well from Serve Week, uh, from one particular project, but we won't go there. Um, however, what we'll see today is that God always finishes what he starts. He doesn't go halfway or 90% and then stop. No, he fully completes what he starts. God doesn't get overwhelmed at the outset. No, he completely finishes what he starts. And because of this, we can have a great joy. And so today, in the letter to the Philippi church, uh, we will see this play out in verses 1 to 11. In chapter 1, we're going to see the beginning of the letter. At the beginning of the Philippian church, we'll see uh, the end goal. We're going to see the completion. And we'll also see joy in the process. And so that said, we've got three turns to structure our time today. Number one, uh, gospel beginnings. Number two, gospel joy. And number three, gospel completions. And I say gospel at each point because the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is essential at every point. You know, a fun fact about the book of Philippians, it's a gospel-saturated book. It uses the word gospel more, than 100, more per 100 words than any other book in the Bible. It's one of the more used words in this book. And so uh, the good news of Jesus and his work are all over this Bible. It affects everything in this letter. And so that said, let's start reading in verse 1. This is what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for are you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here we see our first point. Number one, gospel beginnings. You know, in this section, we'll look at both the beginning of the letter and then uh, we'll do a flashback to Acts chapter 16, looking at the, how the church actually began 
Uh, so let's, let's first look at the beginning of the letter. This, uh, these first few verses lay the foundation of the letter. And so I want to point out a few significant things here in the first couple of verses. We see in verse 1 who it's from and who it's to. We see that it's written from both Paul and Timothy. Uh, and they both show immediate humility. They, 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 they say they're servants of Christ Jesus. They're in submission to Jesus. Uh, and they're addressing this church to the entire church at Philippi. Uh, they go out of their way to include the overseers, the pastors, and the deacons uh, that serve in the ministries of the church, those that serve uh, in the ministries of the church, showing us that this letter is for everyone. Right? No one in the church is exempt from what's inside this letter. Uh, it, do, it doesn't bypass the pastors nor the deacons. And then in verse 2, they they give a common and a weighty greeting. It's one of Paul's common greetings. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In which this is not to be ignored, right? This is not to be glossed over. We can't can't think of this greeting as the common, hey, how you doing? Because uh, there's a lot of weight to what's said said here. Uh, Let's look at this just for a second, realizing... Right, that every person that is in Christ Jesus, every person that God has begun a work in, he's done it by grace. It's not something that we deserved or earned, but rather it was something we did not deserve. It's complete grace. And that we know that through the gospel is that receiving God's grace found in Jesus Christ that was shown by him going to the cross to die for our sins and rose from the grave, defeating sin and death on our behalf. We see that receiving God's grace is a prerequisite to receiving God's peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is the grace of God uh, and is required for the peace of God. By believing in Jesus through faith, God grants us the peace of God. We're no longer hostile with God, but brought near to God in peace. Every gospel beginning marks the grace of God and the peace of God on our lives. Which, and what is so good for us to remember today is that the grace and peace of God will always exceed our greatest challenges. Always. God's grace is greater than our sin. And God's grace is also greater than our chaos. Through the gospel, by God's grace, and nothing that we've done in and of ourselves, God takes us out of our sin and chaos and brings us into his peace. We can rest in that today. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we are not in chaos. We are in God's peace. That's our gospel beginning. That's how Paul and Timothy start the letter, laying the foundation that is all because of grace, reminding us we are in God's peace. Our gospel beginnings, the promise of God's grace and God's peace, they're a bedrock foundation for gospel joy. But before we go there into gospel joy, what I also want to point out in verse 3 to 6 in the book of Philippians, we're going to read it again. It says, I thank my God, in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we see that Paul, he's thankful for how he remembers them, the the, the church, the Philippi church. He prays for them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. They, They support Paul. And this is what I want to point out. He says in verse 5, he says, from the first day until now. And what I love about the Philippian church is the story of their beginning, how they began, their gospel beginning. Uh, we're going to cover this in our groups this week uh, where, we see both the, where we see the birth of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. 
But just for me to quickly tell the story, or just listen to how this church was started, how it was planted. You know, I've been so encouraged and challenged by this. In Acts chapter 16, uh, we see they're having trouble and they're not having uh, much success in a few different places. And then Paul gets a vision to go to a region called Macedonia, uh, where Philippi, the city was in this, in this region, and they obeyed and they went to Macedonia. Uh, they didn't have any clear direction on exactly where to go. Uh, and so they went to the busiest city in that region, which was Philippi. And Paul's strategy uh, was just to look to see where God was already working and he, then just to go there. So he looked for people that may be praying. They didn't know. He didn't know if they'd be praying or not. Uh, it just says they supposed it. Or he had a hunch. I don't know if you've ever had a hunch. I love a good hunch. It feels like something fun to explore. Uh, so they went with their hunch. They found a few women. Uh, they sat down on the grass and they started talking to them about Jesus. And God opened up uh, a businesswoman uh, named Lydia, her heart. And then they went and shared with her entire household, and the entire household gets baptized. And then next, right after that, Paul sees a slave girl that many would have said uh, she was way too far off, right? The, the Bible says she had a spirit of divination. In fact, the, the Bible says she was annoying Paul. Paul helped bring restoration to her, and through an incredible miracle, she went home that night a Christian. And then next, Paul gets thrown into prison because of everything that she did, everything he did uh, with, uh, with that slave girl. Uh, th they worship the Lord. God does a miracle and they get out of jail. And the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And the only thing they said was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the jailer and his entire family uh, became Christians and they all rejoiced. And because of these three encounters, the church was birthed. Paul and Silas did nothing miraculous, but God did the miraculous. And what did Paul and Silas do? They were sensitive to the Spirit's leading uh, and direction. They had a hunch, and they started to look to see where God was working, and so they just found people. And they sat down with them, and they shared Christ with them. And so Paul and Silas, they obeyed the Lord's leading, and they worshiped the Lord. They spoke about the Lord, and the Lord moved. God moved in power through their evangelism efforts, and the church was birthed. It was the beginning of the church. But do you know what would have hindered the church from ever birthing? If they were apathetic to the Spirit's leading. If they were never found people who were searching, if they never spoke of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to dive more into that in our groups this week. But let me ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit leading you to sit down with and share Jesus with? These are, these are gospel beginnings. What if God wants to start something in someone through your obedience? Right, will we sit down and share the good news of Jesus with them? Right, who do we need to get lunch with or coffee with? Who do we go on a walk with? Who do we need to, uh, where do we need to go to look for people who are searching? What does God want to begin through your small steps, through our small steps of obedience? And let's not forget that Paul and Silas went to a bunch of places and were shut down with no success before the Philippian church was ever birthed. Because listen, it only takes one conversation to see the gospel take root in a person's life, to see gospel beginnings. And let's fast forward several years later. While Paul is in prison, he writes to this church he saw birthed from nothing. He's writing to them and he speaks one of my favorite verses over them in verse 6 and says, And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
He's calling the Philippian church to remember their gospel beginnings, to remember what God started in them, to remember the incredible power displayed in their miraculous beginnings, and to remember what God starts, he finishes. And for us here today who are, following, who are followers of Christ, what God has began in us, he will complete in us. If God has began something in you, he will not leave you, he will not abandon you, and he will not forget about you. Know what God starts, he completes. This is an incredible reason to rejoice with an incredible joy leading us to our second point. Number two, gospel joy. And something I think we need to be clear on throughout this series is joy. Uh, something that I've, I've just found interesting, just as a side note, um, just over the past 20 years in Christian culture, we, Christians often try to make the distinction between joy and happiness, as if one were spiritual and the other were not. It often sounds kind of like this. Happiness is superficial. It's a circumstantial feeling, but joy is a deep and enduring affection. I'm guilty of saying this myself. Uh, it sounds great and philosophical, but uh, the more we really think about it, we start to realize, well, maybe that's not so right because happiness and joy in the Bible are often uh, used interchangeably along with gladness or blessed or delight. You know, we could say our point today is, uh, uh, we could change our point to say gospel happiness and it would still be good and right. Or maybe you've heard this saying, uh, God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Uh, well, no, that's, that's also uh, slightly off because as we see here, God wants us to be happy and holy. He wants both. God is for our happiness and for our joy and for our holiness because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's for our good. But the distinction that's important for Christians is not the word, but rather it's the source. Right? It's the source of joy and gladness and happiness that's important for the Christian. Because the reality is, if our primary source of joy and happiness are found in our job or our spouse or our friends or our family or school or possessions or circumstances or financial stability or health or reputation or anything else other than Jesus, when those things start to turn south, not if or, or, or when, some of them do, our joy and our happiness will fluctuate with, with them. And so a gospel joy that Paul portrays in the book of Philippians is found first in Jesus, is foundational in the gospel. And, and what do we know about Jesus if we place faith in him? We've said this, he will never leave us or forsake us. What he begins in us, he will complete. But what often happens, uh, and we've all been there as Christians, we know intellectually that our joy and happiness are found in Jesus, but when life starts to change and shift, when troubles and trials come, just like they always do, all of a sudden we realize our primary joy was possibly found maybe in something else that's not stable, that does not leave us, and that can forsake us. But what I don't want us to miss here uh, from Paul is that his source of joy was not only Jesus, but it was also found in others. You know, his first and primary source, his bedrock foundational source was found in Christ. But that's not to say he didn't also find joy elsewhere, secondarily. Uh, and things, other things around us can certainly create joy. You know, a little cheesy acronym that Pastor Tony Morita uses, uh, and I think is really helpful. And by the way, he said it was cheesy, not me. Uh, I'm not throwing him under the bus. But when we, when we talk about the secret of joy... Uh, what's important is to keep things in order. And this is the acronym he uses. Uh, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. Reminding us that we need to get the order right. 
This is how uh, we see Paul write through Philippians. He speaks mostly of Jesus. He's all about Jesus, but he also speaks of others. But he, doesn't, he also doesn't act like we, he doesn't have any needs. Right? The Philippian church helps supply his needs. And it created thankfulness and joy in Paul. But what's important is the order. Uh, the first and eternal source of jo- for, for joy is Jesus. Then secondly, uh, we can find joy in others. God created us to be in community. God uses others for our joy. My wife and my kids and my friends and my family, they absolutely can lead me to joy. And then lastly, uh, yourself. <laughs> absolutely, right? The Bible calls us to lay down our life. But we also have basic needs and desires that can be used that can be good and used for our joy, enjoying work and hobbies and basic self-care. They're for our good and for our joy. God created us for these things, and they're good and right. And when the order is right, when our needs and desires are not met, when work and hobbies uh, no longer lead us to joy, when life seems to be upside down, chaotic turmoil and strife are all around us, when others fail us, we still have our primary and foundational source of joy, and it's found in Jesus Christ. We can still rejoice when everything around us seems to be failing us. And so that said, let's dive more into this, uh, seeing how fine joy is specifically in others. We see Paul in verse 3 to 6 show us this. In verse 3, we see that Paul, uh, we see that for Paul, remembering the Philippi church, remembering them, created thankfulness in Paul. In verse 4, when he prayed for them, for others, it stirred affections in joy, uh, of joy in his prayers. You know, Pastor Kent Hughes, he points out about Paul that uh, Paul rarely thanked God for things, but, he, but rather he thanked God for people. And what's interesting, Paul says, uh, he's thankful for the entire church. In verse 4, 7, and 8, he says all of them in all three verses. Not some of them, not the ones that were nice, not the ones that didn't cause problems. Uh, and we know from chapter 4 in the, book of, in the letter that some may have needed some strong rebuking. But no, he thanked God for all of them. Uh, their conflict did not crush his gratitude. Their conflict didn't make Paul put himself before others, reorienting the order. No, Paul maintained a Jesus first, others second, and others third ministry, uh, or uh, uh, me third ministry of gratitude as a source of joy. And what he says in verses seven and eight, uh, he goes on further to emphasize this. This is what he says. It says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. So Paul was able to find joy by expressing his gratitude of others. We see in verse 8, he had a yearning for all of them with the affections of Christ. I mean, just get this. The affections that Christ had for them, Paul longed for those same affections for all of them. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we a grateful people? Do we express thankfulness for others? Do we have the same affections for others that Christ has for them? If we're going to fight for joy, we need to fight for thankfulness in Jesus as well as in others. May we be a people that see God's grace in people's lives before we find the fault in their life. 
Listen, if it's easier uh, for us to find fault in someone's life, specifically a brother or sister in Christ who is a partner in the gospel, than it is to find thankfulness and gratitude for that person, that's a good sign of a person that may struggle to find joy. If there's any sort of hard feelings, ill will, or discord towards someone who was, who was bought by the blood of Jesus, one of the greatest things that we can do is to pray and thank God for that person, expressing real and true thankfulness. You know, in one of my books this week, one, one commentator said this. He said, many of the problems in our churches would disappear if we genuinely pray for one another. And I said this a few weeks ago, our attitudes are contagious. Right? Are we spreading a harshness and discord? Are we spreading joy and thankfulness? May we be a, a people that when discord and disharmony come, not if they come, but when they come, may we be a people that model Paul's example and speak into hard situations with joy and thankfulness, remembering that our joy is found in Christ, remembering that we have an endless fountain of joy at our disposal. We have an endless fountain of joy in Jesus. It's eternally at our disposal. It will never run dry. And because of this, uh, this was the only way that Paul was able to rejoice in his imprisonment, to rejoice with joy for the, uh, for the people that caused discord. It was found in the fountain of God's grace. Paul's joy was birthed out of the peace of God and not in the chaos of the world. And we go to Jesus, our endless fountain of joy, and think about how sinful we really are and how holy God really is. And in spite of our sin and chaos, the fact that he still labels us, right, he still labels us at peace with God, this is astounding. This is a miraculous grace. We should never lose sight of this, nor get over it, over it because this is an amazing grace. Because brothers and sisters, our gospel joy, it is an endless fountain, regardless of the chaos of the surrounding world and building off of that. Something else we can't miss that is part of a gospel joy is the joy of anticipation. The joy found in our last point, number three, gospel completion. Again, God finishes what he starts. We saw in verse six, if God began a good work in you, as we've seen today, he will bring that work in you to completion. So hear this today. If God started your Christian life with grace, he will continue it and complete it with that same grace. And you know, uh, I'm a man of many hobbies. And the problem is I'm not really uh, great at any of them. I've always, I've always liked to think of myself as the uh, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Just kind of average at a lot of things, you know. Uh, and running for me is one of those hobbies. You know, I love, I have a love-hate relationship with running. Uh, I, I ran cross-country in high school, but I wasn't really very good at it. I was the backup caboose. Uh, if our caboose got hurt or didn't run, uh, I, I like to carry up the, the tail end of the race, and I became the caboose. And you may be thinking, Eric, that's not average, that's really bad. Uh, yeah, I know. But my struggle with running still to this day, is that I come out really fast and then I slowly kind of taper off at the end. You know, some days wondering if I even finish. Sometimes I don't. I just start walking. Uh, but, those, but those who are well-trained runners will often finish better than they start. They know every part of the race is important, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we'll see today that throughout this letter, uh, this, is what Paul, this was Paul's goal. It was to finish well, to have a strong gospel completion. But what he also knew leading up to that was also important. 
We see this idea beginning to take root in these next few verses. And so as we go into these last few verses for today, it's good to know it's a prayer. Right? Verse, verses 9 through 11, it's a prayer. It shows us that, uh, what the race should look like. It's, it's how we get to the end of the race. It shows us our gospel completion. Look with me starting in verse 9. It says, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let's take a few minutes, and we're going to work through this, uh, just phrase by phrase. So try to hang with me here. I know we're in the back end of our time, but I, I think it'll be really good for us. You know, as I've already said, this was Paul's prayer for his church. He prays in verse 9. He says uh, that their love may abound more and more, that their love would continue to grow, that it would abound, that it would not be static or idle, that it would be ongoing growth, continual growth. And look what it's paired with. I love what it's paired with. That, it's, that their love is to continue to grow with knowledge and discernment. So it's an informed love. It's a wise love. It's a discerning love. Something I found helpful uh, just to distinguish between knowledge and discernment is that knowledge would ask what is right, where discernment would ask what is best. We need both in all situations. We should ask, is it right? And also ask, is it best? And, but, and the order is important. We need to know what is right before uh, we can seek to know what is best and so that we can grow in love. Because Christian love, it's not a mushy, gushy love that is only based out of emotions. No, it's based off of what is true and right as seen in God's word. It's found on an eternal and enduring foundation. It's stable and sure and a steadfast love. It's directed by what is true and not the shifting sand of our emotions. In God's word, there is a continual balance. There's a continual tension of both knowledge and discernment balanced with love and care. We must let what we know to be true steer and guide how we love. We can't get that backwards. We can't let what we love steer and guide what we think is true. We can say it this way. Loving rightly flows out of knowing rightly. And we see this, uh, there's a reason for this. Look at, look at verse 10. It says, So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. When we, when we can know and discern what is excellent, what is pure, and what is blameless by the guide rails of God's word, we need to know what is good and what is best to be excellent, pure, and blameless. And this is for a specific reason. Look at the end of verse 10. It's for the day of Christ. Our day of completion is the day we see Jesus Christ face to face. Paul's prayer was for the Philippian church uh, that they would be presented to God as pure and blameless. We need to be made excellent, pure, and blameless to be presented to God at the day of Christ. And Paul's prayer was that they and us would grow in that and grow towards that. And then hear this, without a doubt, God wants to grow us now. He wants to grow us in purity and holiness and being blameless and living with excellence and growing in a more perfect love and knowledge and discernment. God wants us, as the beginning of verse 11 says, look at verse 11, it says, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul knows that God wants us to have that right now and also for the day of Christ. But the only way this happens is by what it says at the end of verse 11. 
It all comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is so important and essential. God wants to grow us and complete us for the, to be presented at the day of Christ as holy and blameless and filled with righteousness. But it only comes through Jesus Christ. And what's crazy, uh, I, I think at least, is that we often get this so backwards. I mean, how silly are we to think that we're saved by grace through faith, but yet the rest is up to us in our own strength, that maybe if we pray enough, read our Bible enough, or if we're in Christian community enough, or we come to church enough, or confess enough, or worship enough, then we will experience God's grace. No, that's completely backwards. We've received God's grace through nothing that we have done. So therefore, we have the privilege to pray. We want to read our Bible and we have the privilege to be in Christian community. Listen, God's uh, grace is not a result of our good works. It fuels our good works. Our good works are part of the evidence that we've experienced God's grace. We cannot muster up enough discipline or strength to continue to complete or complete what God calls us to do. You can't. I can't. Nobody can. If my best hope for completion is my goodness, if it's my reverence or my discipline or my obedience or my joy, then I'm not convinced I'll make it. However, you know what I'm absolutely confident of? Jesus' goodness and Jesus' reverence and Jesus' continual discipline and obedience and Jesus' joy. The, the Holy Spirit worked in me for salvation by grace. The Holy Spirit works in me to grow me by grace. And then he will bring me to the day of completion when I see Jesus face to face by his grace. We start by grace, we're sustained by grace, and we're completed by grace. What God starts, or what God, what God starts, he completes. He does not start our life with him and then bail on us or start to taper off and not finish. No, the same astounding, miraculous work that God did to save us is also the same astounding, miraculous work that God does to grow us and complete us. And as we sit in our seats right now, as you sit there right now, if God has saved you, hear this, God is moving you towards completion. You cannot be derailed from this because what God starts, he completes. Take comfort in that today. If the, if the life around you seems crazy or chaotic, we can stand firm knowing that if we are in Christ, God is holding us, sustaining us, and completing us by his grace. If there is an ongoing sin struggle or an emotional battle or a battle to fight for what is true, or maybe our heart is callous because of the world around you, causing some sort of spiritual apathy or a lack of zeal, or maybe there's some sort of relational strife with a friend or a family member, whatever it is, know that the same miraculous grace that saved you is also sustaining you and will also bring you to the day of completion. Knowing that one day, as verse 11 shows us, regardless of what happens on this earth, those that have put their faith in Jesus will be presented to God as pure and blameless, that we will be completely filled with righteousness, with what is good and right, not halfway full, not partially full, no, completely full of what is good and right. And on that day, everything that is broken will be restored. Every bit of hurt and pain, every bit of apathy, confusion, and sin struggle will be no more. If we, it will be completely gone. Because those that are in Christ will be fully completed, and it's all because of grace. That's what we have to look forward to. That's our great anticipated hope. That's our gospel completion. 
Brothers and sisters, there is an incredible and an eternal and astounding joy and happiness that is found in knowing that God uh, finishes what he starts. And so that said, I want to close today by circling back around to the the order of our source of joy, our acronym, J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself third. I want to circle back around to this uh, because the reality is every day there is a spiritual war that is seeking to throw off the order in our lives. We have an enemy that every day is trying to put our own needs and desires first, speaking lies to us about what will give us joy. I could make a long list, I think, of what those could be. But I also wouldn't be surprised if you knew exactly what those things were in your own life that may be robbing your joy. Those things that maybe have been placed in the wrong order. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I look at my life and realize there's a lack of joy or a lack of zeal or I'm fearful or anxious or discontent, it's often because I've placed myself, my supposed needs and desires, uh, or others as my primary source of joy that at best is continually shifting and not stable. But you know what else often steals my joy and my zeal? When I know what to do, uh, which is to look to Christ first. But you know what I often skip over? It's others. And one of the greatest medicines for a heart full of sorrow that struggles to find joy in a chaotic world is to regularly look to Christ, who is our firm foundation. Just as David David says in Psalm 63, he says, In a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Because of that, my lips will praise you. God's love is steadfast. It's enduring. It cannot be moved. God's relentless love that holds us is better than life. And because of that, we can praise God. And then the outworking of that, then as more medicine for a weary soul, praying for God to begin a good work in others. <laughs> this is not just for their good, but this is also for our good. Because it takes our eyes off of ourselves and it directs us to Christ and to others. And then, and then this week, would you just pray for th- with thanksgiving for your brothers and sisters in Christ, thanking God for those that you're close with and then also maybe those that you're not close with? Because as we've seen from Paul's example, regularly thanking God for others, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is so good for our souls. Would you do that this week? Because brothers and sisters, may we not forget, God sits on his throne as an endless fountain of joy, starting good works all around us while also sustaining and completing what he starts. Because that's what God does. God completes what he starts. Let's pray. God, you are our source of joy. God, you are, uh, you're good, you're holy, you're blameless, and you are taking us to be made uh, right with you, to be fully made right with God. Father, we know that you are working in us, that you're sustaining us, and that you're completing us. And it's all by your grace. We love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name.